Well, it's awesome to, it's awesome to see uh, many of you brave the cold and come. I hope that you know, I mean, and, and I think everyone just uses their own judgment, but on Sunday morning when it's snowing and it's kind of on the edge of should we cancel, should we not, or this morning is super cold and um, I hope you just know, hey, use freedom to, don't, you know, don't ever feel pressure because we're not canceling. You have to sh- show up if you're uh, worried your car's going to break down on the way to church or something, you're going to be stranded. Um, but I do love seeing you here this morning. And I love, I love Christmas. And one of the things I love about Christmas is I love the songs that we sing at Christmas time. I mean, they are so rich, so deep, and draw us to Christ in such a rich and powerful way. Um, this morning, as we, as we jump into God's word, I, I want us to continue in the attitude of worship. We are drawing near to God. We're not, we, don't, we haven't stepped out of worship, and now we're going into something else. We are continuing worship. And I want, to, I, I want you to encounter God today through his word and by his spirit. Um, we're going to cover a familiar story. And when we come around Christmas time, we talk about familiar stories and Christmas is usually kind of run through with sentimentality. And these two things, familiarity and sentimentalism, they don't really lend themselves to power encounters with God. But I'm praying today that, um, that God will show up and, in a powerful way and speak to you uh, deeply. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open to Matthew chapter 2. Or you can follow along in your bulletin. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12, very familiar story. No doubt most, if not everyone here, has heard this before. Matthew 2, 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. And have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your spirit would be here. Holy Spirit, that you would come and unpack this very familiar story. And I pray that rather than familiarity breeding apathy, and we just kind of 
fall into a lull here mentally and emotionally and affectionately, that you would stir us up this morning with this familiar story because there are some surprising things here that we need to see. There is glorious, there, is, there are glorious messages in this story that we must receive that I pray would go deep into our hearts this morning by your power and for the glory of Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. So this is one of the most familiar stories probably in all the Bible, right? As a young child, you got the nativity scene out. You saw the three wise men. You heard the story in, in Sunday school growing up. This may be, this is certainly one of the most familiar stories. And along with its familiarity, it has a lot of myth and tradition surrounding it. But this familiar story shows us what Christmas is really about. Christmas, you guys, is about joyful worship. Christmas is about adoring the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how the wise men, when they, when they see the star parked over the house where the baby was, where baby Jesus was, and Joseph and Mary, it says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's big joy. So, as we carefully look at this story, my hope is that you will find yourself surprised. Okay, don't fall asleep on me. Don't say, I know this story, I know this story, I know, I know the whole thing from beginning to end. Don't do that. I hope you find yourself surprised in a way that changes the way that you see Christmas. Because this story shows us that Christmas turns our expectations on their head and turns the entire world upside down. The way that the world works. So let's first step through the story and carefully look at three people and groups of people and how they respond to Jesus being born. And then I want to spend some time showing you how this story, this familiar story we all know, surprisingly turns our expectations on their head. So there are three people or groups that respond in very different ways to Jesus. The first is Herod. First, we see a hostile opposition to Jesus from King Herod. Now, who is Herod? King Herod was a client king of Judea under the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus. So Caesar Augustus was the emperor of Rome, and he had lots of different provinces that he had that he ruled over and he had client kings or something like a governor ruling over those areas. So King Herod was a client king over Judea. He was a very, very successful politician, but he was not a good guy. He was a ruthless man. He had a history of removing threats from his throne, or threats to his throne, I should say. So paranoid was Herod that his 33 years of reign in Judea is full of the brutal execution of one political enemy after another. He is reported to have had one of his wives, his favorite of his ten wives, killed. His favorite of his ten wives. Because he thought she was conspiring against him. He had three of his sons and some of his grandsons executed because he thought they were plotting against him. Caesar Augustus is reported to have said that, kind of probably somewhat joking, but there's a lot of seriousness to it as well. 
He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. His pigs were treated better than his sons. They were killed. So dangerous was it to be one of Herod's flesh and blood that his sons, grandsons, and even his own wife were executed because he thought they were plotting against him. So it's not surprising that Herod is troubled when he hears the news that a king's been born. The wise men show up in Jerusalem and they say, where has this king been born? The king of the Jews. And word is brought to King Herod and it says he's troubled. And not only is Herod troubled, but it says all of Jerusalem is troubled. The word troubled could be translated terrified. They are terrified. Herod's having an anxiety attack because he hears that a king has been born. So he calls, he calls a group of people that he is sure will know where this king is born. He calls the chief priests and scribes to him. They come to him. He says, where is the Christ to be born? And they share with him the prophecy out of Micah 5. They actually read to him the prophecy of Micah 5 where it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the chief priests come to, come to Herod and say, This Christ is going to be born in Bethlehem. And notice what Micah 5 says. It calls him a ruler. A ruler. He is indeed a king. So when Herod hears this, no doubt his anxiety level is increased, right? Maybe doubled or tripled. He is troubled at the idea of a king being born. So then he calls these wise men to himself to find out from them when this star was first seen in the sky by them. And here's what Herod wants to know. He wants to know, where's this child being born? And when was he born? When was the star first in the sky? And he said to the wise men, now go and search all of this out because I want to worship him as well. But of course, Herod was conspiring. In his mind, he was thinking, this kid's days are numbered. He was just another threat to Herod's throne that needed to be removed. The wise men go to Bethlehem. They see Jesus. We're going to get to that later. Once Herod finds out, well, then the wise men, they leave. They don't go back to Herod because God tells them in a dream not to. And so they return to their home country a different way. And once Herod finds out that the wise men did not listen to him and that they tricked him, he went on a murderous rage. Verses 16 to 18 says he ordered, sent some of his men and ordered all boys aged two and under to be slaughtered. This is part of the Christmas story. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because... They are no more. Herod heard that a king had been born. 
And his initial instinct was hostile opposition. This king must be removed at all cost. Even if it means slaughtering perhaps dozens of innocent male children in Bethlehem in that region. Here's the truth. Jesus is troubling for those who do not want to worship him. He always has been and he always will be. For those who want to remain king of their own lives, Jesus will be met with hostile force. Tim Keller says, the question, where is the true king, is the most disturbing question possible to a human heart since we want at all costs to remain on the throne of our own lives. And until Christ breaks through by God's grace and we are brought to our knees to adore him as king, we will resist his kingship over our lives. The fundamental message Jesus preached when he came to earth was repent for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is the reign of God, the rule of Christ. And men and women who do not want to bow the knee to Jesus will resist him at every turn and oppose him. But the next response to Jesus is, I think, even more troubling. You have Herod, he's got this hostile opposition to Christ. And then you have the chief priests and the scribes and what seems to be just indifference and apathy. Who are the chief priests and scribes? Well, they are, the simple answer is they are the religious leaders of the Jewish people. You have the chief priest, right, who is the head of temple worship. And then underneath him, you have chief priests who serve him and are under him and serve the people. And the scribes are those who are experts in the law, and they also added all kinds of human tradition to the Mosaic law. These are the chief priests and scribes. Here is the amazing thing. Of all the people in our story here, of all the people in our story, the the people who are most likely to be excited about Jesus coming seemed to care the least. They should have been the most ready for him to come, Right? They had the Old Testament prophecies. They had these, these scriptures full of hope of a coming Messiah. They should have, once they heard that he was born, they should have been thrilled that he was born. But they weren't. They're brought in to give Herod counsel as to where the Christ was to be born. And after that, well... That's it. You don't hear anything from them. Here's what we should have heard after that. All of Jerusalem is troubled at the the news of this Christ being born. Herod brings them in to, to, to know where he's born at. And right after that, the chief priests and the scribes make a beeline for Bethlehem. So they can be the first ones there to see him and bow down and worship their Messiah. It says they went in and told Herod where he was to be born, Bethlehem, and then back to business as usual. Utter indifference. I mean, the silence is deafening. This was their king. Of course, he's the king of the whole world, but this was their promised Messiah. 
they were apparently so busy with their religious activity that they missed the one it was all about and the one that it was all pointing to. Isn't that a word? That's a word for us as well. We can be so about our religious activity, our devotions, our coming to church, our worship, our prayer, our Bible reading, and we miss the fact this is meant to bring us to Christ. It's meant to lead us to God and not be an end in itself. But there is another group, and their response is stunning and amazing. We also see joyful, the joyful, reverent worship of the wise men. Who are these wise men? Well, there are some myths surrounding these guys. The Bible doesn't say that they're kings. Right, the, the Christmas song, We Three Kings. I'm not saying we throw that out, but it doesn't say that they're kings. The, the word wise men comes from the Greek word magi, which indicates that they were magicians. They might have been part of a priestly class, but they were astrologers. They were, for, they were future tellers. They were dream interpreters. They, they looked in the sky for signs and sought to interpret phenomena from looking at the sky. So right off the bat, we should be informed that the first readers of Matthew's gospel would not have had a positive view of these men. They were from the east, probably from what's formerly, formerly Persia, today's Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia. And the reason for thinking this is because these regions certainly would have had some access to some Jewish scriptures from the time that Jews, the Jews were in exile there. And these magi, I'm going to call them magi. So we have in our mind, they're not like wise old sages. They might have been smart. They probably were. But they were magicians. They were pagans. They come to Jerusalem and they make their intentions very clear. It just says they show up in town and say, where has the king of the Jews been born? For we have come to worship him amazing. After finding out where he was, they make their way to to the town of Bethlehem and check this out. Look with me again at verses 10 and 11. It is utterly amazing. The way that they respond to Jesus is not moderate in any way. They do not, they do not passively come in. They do not, they, they do not moderate in how they respond to Jesus. It is amazing. Verses 10, 11 says, and when they saw the star, Check this out. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And listen to this. They fell down and worshipped him. Grown men. Then opening their treasures, they offer him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They rejoiced. Let, let, me just, let me just take a few thoughts here. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. One of the ways that biblical writers seek to emphasize certain things for us is when they repeat things. To say they rejoiced exceedingly 
And then to say with great joy is kind of to say the same thing. Right? They, they rejoiced exceedingly with exceeding joy. They rejoiced greatly with great joy. Literally, we could say they rejoiced deeply with deep, they rejoiced deeply in their hearts with a mega joy. The Greek word for great is megos, with a mega joy. They rejoiced deeply with a mega, massive joy. Next, it says that they fell down and worshipped him. Here's what they do. They assume a posture, recognizing that he is the exalted one in the room. Now, I wonder, I don't know, when you read this, maybe it's just me because I'm trying to see the story a little differently or just think about it more deeply than just what I remember growing up and reading the story for years and years. If you walked into a room and saw some grown men kneeling before a cradle, would you think that was strange? It's okay, you can nod your heads. Or you can say, yeah, that's weird. Now, I wonder if these wise men, as they fell down before him, were looking around thinking, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I just feel so compelled to, but this is really weird. They fell down and worshipped him. I mean, flat on their face or on their knees. They did not stand back aloof. They approached him and fell down. And then it says they open up their treasures. We don't know exactly what the wise men knew about Christ. We don't know all that they knew or didn't know about his coming and who he really was and, and his future work and ministry and accomplishment through his death, resurrection, and ascension. We don't know all that they knew, but clearly these gifts were appropriate gifts and point to the significance of Christ's ministry. Clearly, they considered the birth of Christ more momentous than just an important person being born. It was an arrival. You guys know the word Advent means the coming or arriving. The arriving or the arrival or the coming of Christ. It's not just a birth. It is God arrived on planet Earth. And the way that they approached him, the way that they poured out their treasures upon him or toward him or gave to him show that there's some, it was not just, not just the king of Jewish people. <clears throat> it seems like they knew something more was up here. They brought him gold. Gold is the king of metal or the, the metal of kings. When Jesus is presented with gold, it points to his right to rule and reign. They brought him frankincense. Frankincense or incense was used in temple worship. It was mixed with, uh, with oil to anoint the high priest for his temple worship service. So when they present Jesus with frankincense, it points to his being our great high priest. They present him myrrh. Now, myrrh is a spice used to embalm. Now, if you came to my birthday party and brought me something like that, I might be offended. But them bringing this to Jesus was very appropriate. 
Certainly the Old Testament prophecies, we don't know if they knew this or not, but the Old Testament prophecies spoke of the suffering of the Messiah. They brought him myrrh, showing that he is our sacrifice. These gifts show Jesus to be king. We would say king of the universe, our great high priest and our sacrifice. Well, I said that there's a surprise in the story which turns the world on its head, turns all of our expectations upside down. And here's how it does that. We see the responses of these people and groups. But here's what the story teaches us. The story, this story, and Christmas in general show us God draws the least likely to Jesus. God draws the least likely to Jesus. In our story, the Magi were the least likely to worship Jesus, and yet they were the ones who end up finding him. And I would say more accurately, they, didn't, they did find him, but there was something going on before that. I would say the wise men were actually led to Jesus by God. And you might say, no, they, didn't, they weren't led. They, they followed the star. They were wise men. They looked at the star and it led them to Jesus. I would say true. They, they did follow a star. But stars don't have intentionality and motivation. And who leads the stars? God leads the stars, right? You with me? God leads the stars, doesn't he? Isaac Watts gifted the church with his song, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, in which he says this, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at God's command and all the stars obey. All the stars obey God's command. All the stars obey God's voice. God draws them out. God tells this one to go here. God tells that one to go there. God told this star of the Messiah to lead these wise men. Now, that's what what Isaac Watts says. He's not infallible. But I would suggest that he merely echoes what Scripture clearly affirms. Isaiah 40, verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes and see who created these. Like he's saying, go outside at night, like last night, or the, tonight, tonight. It's going to be really cold, but it's probably going to be really clear, and there's going to be a lot of stars out. So lift up your eyes tonight and see. And he says, who created these? All these balls of fire in the sky, lighting up the sky. He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. It is the Father who drew the Magi to Christ. Of course, later on in Jesus, when he grew up and entered into his public ministry in John chapter 6, Jesus affirms this when he says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. The Magi were drawn by the Father to Christ. So it begs the question, because remember my point is, God draws the least likely. Why the Magi? Why them? 
Why not Herod? Herod had this position of power. Herod certainly could have furthered God's agenda, couldn't he have? I mean, he could have fast-forwarded God's agenda years, even decades, with all of his power. He could have brought the child into the palace and cared for him. He could have blown the trumpet and said, A new king has been born. Everyone come and bow down and worship him. But God didn't choose Herod. Why not the Jews? Why not the Jewish leaders? They certainly would have been the most likely in terms of how the world thinks and how we would often think. They were the ones who received the Old Testament scriptures with all of its promises. The hope of the Messiah was given to them that he would come and his universal reign would spread throughout the whole globe. And yet he didn't choose them either. God didn't choose the powerful and he didn't choose the religious. God's agenda apparently is not ours, like ours. And that's really good news. Have you ever heard someone say, if I was God, I would? <laughs> if I was God, I'd blow it all. all right? I'd mess it all up. And so would you. I'm glad God is God. His agenda is not ours, though. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29 says, it reveals, God, uh, reveals to us God's motivation and how he works. And here's what it says. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Now, Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, but he's speaking to us too. Not many of you were, not many of, you were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God chose the least likely in our story, not the powerful, not the religious. It's a group of pagan magicians who are found kneeling at the foot of a cradle in adoring worship of King Jesus. And why? So that when we read the story, and I hope you read it differently from now on, if you haven't read it this way, that when we read the story, we are finding ourselves boasting in God's amazing grace for the least likely to receive it. I would say, how'd these guys end up there? By God's grace. Alone, by God's grace. It was nothing in them that commended them to God. It was God's free grace, and it's the same with us. The basis of our acceptance before God is not who we are or what we bring to the table, but it is God's grace through Christ. And this is a great cause to celebrate. Because what Jesus accomplished on our behalf and the grace of God that comes through Jesus is immutable. It's unchangeable. It won't change from day to day like my emotions will and like my performance will and like my thoughts will and like my willpower will. Christ, his accomplishment is perfect and God's grace comes through him freely.
this Christmas story also um, shows us something else. It shows us that you must become a fool in order to become truly wise. The Magi become fools. These wise men become utter fools. They behave in such a foolish manner. Look at what they do. They fall down before a baby and worship him. We, I think we all admitted that if we, saw, if we showed up at the scene, we would say, that is strange. That is bizarre. What's wrong with these men? They need to get back up on their feet. Act a little more dignified. It sounds foolish, and it is in a wonderful way. 1 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. Don't be deceived. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Here's foolishness, all right? Matthew's gospel calls Jesus the king of the Jews in, at his two most vulnerable points, okay? Here when he's born as a baby, or not when he's born, but shortly after he's born as a baby, he's called king of the Jews. And then later in Matthew 27, at the crucifixion scene, Jesus is called king of the Jews three times. When he stands before Pilate, Pilate questions him, are you the king of the Jews? When he's being mocked and punched and a crown of thorns is put on his head by the Roman, uh, Roman soldiers, they say, hail, king of the Jews. And then a sign put over him on the cross that says, king of the Jews. It's foolish. But it's glorious. Listen to this foolish. This foolishness, these foolish things that Christians believe. We believe that God entered his creation as a baby, virgin born of a young Jewish girl. This little sliver of land in the Middle East. I heard one, I think it was Christopher Hitchens said, why would God, if there is a God, right? Why would he choose to use the Jewish people? Why wouldn't he use the more sophisticated people like the Chinese? Foolish. Christians believe that this baby king accomplished his mission on earth by growing up and dying for his enemies in order to make them his friends. That's what we believe, right? It seems so silly. This utter foolishness, and this is utter foolishness and weak to the world, but God's wisdom and God's power to lovers of Jesus because we know what he's done for us. We know that we once were enemies of his and he died in order to make us his friends. The Magi were truly wise men, not because they figured out how to interpret signs in the sky or because they made their own way to Jesus. But, became, but because they became fools for Christ's sake. Will you become a fool for Christ? Do you believe the foolish and wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ? Finally, this story turns the world on its head 
our expectations upside down because it shows, because Christmas, this story and, the, and, and Christmas in general show us that God is the real seeker and not people. There's a bumper sticker. And I'm, I mean, I think there's a way in which it's true. There's a bumper sticker. If you have it, I'm not, I'm not knocking it. I mean, I kind of am, but not totally. Wise men still seek Jesus. Yes, those who become fools in order that they may become wise. Yes. Um, but not by our own wisdom. God is the one seeking. In our story, we see promises of the Messiah quoted from Micah chapter 5. God's promises of the Messiah. Prophecies God spoke of the Messiah, of his coming. We see an irresistible drawing, a providential star put in the sky, a spirit-generated joy. This is God working out his agenda. God is the one who seeks Furthermore, Christmas teaches us that just as the wise men traveled long distances to get to Jesus, God traveled a great distance in order to come to us. Not a geographical distance, but the eternal Son of God, God himself. Jason read it earlier, or read it or quoted earlier out of Philippians 2. Entered into creation by becoming a human being. Laid his glory aside. He had equality with God, but he didn't, think, he didn't count it a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he laid it aside. He emptied himself by becoming a human being. And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, entered his creation in the miracle of the virgin birth, to seek and save the lost. But there's more. That just as the wise men were filled with exceeding joy as they saw their journey's end, so Jesus, as he saw his journey on earth nearing its end, Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. And just as the wise men came bearing gifts, pouring out their treasures, treasures from their homeland, so Jesus came bearing the greatest treasure he could give. He poured out himself for us. And he gives us himself. If Jesus gave us everything, all the gold in the world, everything our sensory beings want, right? And withheld himself. That would be a tragedy. But he has not withheld his greatest gift, which is himself. Says about, it says in uh, Romans, 5, Romans 8, 32, He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Praise be to God. 
The Father is still seeking worshipers who see Jesus as that treasure and fall down before him in adoring, joyful, loving worship. And so you are invited today. I mean, it's like the Spirit of God stands before you. I mean, Jesus stands before you by his Spirit and through his Word and invites every one of you today, everyone here today, to enter into deep and mega, massive joy in Christ. If you have found yourself opposed to Jesus, you found yourself opposed to him because you thought he was the enemy of your joy, put down your arms of rebellion today and receive joy. If you have found yourself indifferent, lukewarm, just kind of apathetic toward Jesus, oh my goodness, there are many times I do. And I'm probably not alone. Repent. He stands ready to receive you now, this very moment. And better than that, he stands at the door of your heart and knocks. And if, he, if you open, I mean, he will come in and he will, he will throw a party for you. May the spirit-generated joy of heaven resound in your heart as it did in the Magi. May a vision of the majesty and meekness mingle together, majesty and meekness, in the Lord Jesus Christ move you to fall on your knees in humble worship. May a sacrificial offering of praise burst from your heart as you consider your King Jesus and his coming and his seeking and his saving accomplishment for you. Today and this Christmas, as we approach it and as you celebrate, Christmas is about worship. Not moderate worship. It's about worship finding its summit in Jesus. Our king has come. The king has come. The one true king has come. He's our king. And he's the king of the universe. So come and adore him. Come and adore him. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. You know how the rest goes? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory, be, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you. You are so glorious, so wonderful. Move in our hearts. Give us a vision of you. Holy Spirit, lead us to Christ. Disclose to us deep in our hearts the things that have been spoken today. Open up our eyes to see the glory of Jesus that we would respond like the Magi did. For certainly they didn't know what we know about Jesus. So I pray you'd move in our hearts that we
we would not only sing, that we would sing and praise, but our lives would be a sacrifice of praise. Jesus to you, our Savior, our Messiah, and our King. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and close out and sing. Go ahead and stand up.